You're listening to the Boise Community Church Podcast. We desire to be a people who are following Jesus authentically and missionally. For more information, please visit boisecommunitychurch.org. If you have your Bible, turn to Mark chapter 10. That's where we're going to be this morning. Um, Kylie and I had the opportunity to go away to the Oregon coast with it for a few days with some friends. And while we were there, I was talking with one of my good friends, is kind of just getting the update, how's your mom, how's your brother, you know, how's everything going? And he was telling me about his brother who's young and he's in love and he's getting ready to get married and um, or getting ready to propose, so he is getting ready to get married, but it's just the very first step. And so as he's telling me about him, you know, he's sharing all these things that his brother, I don't know whether he would have wanted him to share or not, but um, he started, he was telling me the advice he was giving his brother, and I thought it was interesting. He said, he said, you don't marry somebody thinking they're going to stay the same person for the entirety of your marriage. He was, and he was like, me and my wife, we're completely different than the day we got married. And Kylie was sitting with next to me, and she was like, absolutely, and it is for the better. Um, and it's true, we do. We get better, you know, hopefully. Um, we should be getting better. Um, and so he said, when you marry someone, realize that they're going to change. And so he's a follower of Jesus, and he understands the gravity of what marriage is and that it's more than just someone you want to, to, to sleep with or to have sex with or to have fun with or or any of these things, it's about being fully committed to one another. And in the Christian tradition, you know, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, we talk about how it's a marriage covenant, which was a legally binding promise. But unlike how we would use the word promise, because promise feels almost kind of like it's too dainty, but really I can't think of a better term that would fit in our world today. Because it's unlike a contract, which it can be voided whether that's through time or that's that contract is broken because of one party's actions, covenants are lifelong, regardless of the actions. And so he said, you are marrying who, you, who they are today, but you are also marrying who they are becoming and will be in the future. And I just thought that was a very, very powerful point to think about. I know it struck me, and it, you know, because a lot of times when I'm doing marriage counseling or I'm doing premarital counseling, I always talk. I go, "Hey, if they're premar, or if they're, it's premarital, I'm like, hey, remember how you like couldn't keep your hands off each other? You were so excited, and all these things. Hold on to that. And I still believe that. I believe we should fight for that." But love does change. It does change with time. And so I wanted to start with by showing you guys a picture of Kylie and I on our wedding day. We actually just celebrated 12 years of marriage last month. Um, I was 23. Kylie was 22. I just turned 22. And we stood in front of family and friends and God and committed our lives to one another. And when I look back at these pictures... I always think, man, there was so much you didn't know. 
We didn't know that statistically, the younger that you are married, the more likely it, are, likely it is that you are going to experience divorce. We didn't realize that our prefrontal cortex had not been entirely developed up to this point, which is the part of the brain that organizes information and judge, judges if something is risky or safe or not. That's why young people make a lot of like the you know, worst decisions possible. We had no idea that we would have four children, we'd move to a different state, that we would start a church, and what our lives would look like today. But regardless, we stood at this altar and we committed our lives to one another. And so in marriage, though, you can fast forward in a couple of years, you know, the honeymoon phase wears off and you're doing life together. Doesn't mean that the love's gone. It doesn't mean all these things. It's nothing negative. It's just reality. And then you can come up to year seven, which is known as the seven-year itch which I had never heard about till year 10. <laughs> um, but there's a lot of psychological data that confirms that this is a real thing. And the main point of this is, is that people can suspend reality for a, an idea of hope that someone will change for about seven years. That's about as long as someone can hold on to this hope of like, hey, this person's really probably going to change and meet the ideal or, of what I'm really looking for. But at year seven, a lot of people realize, man, they're not changing. This must be who they really are. And it's at this point that couples have to make a decision. And I don't think it's a super intentional, like, they're just like, Wrestling. I mean, it's intentional at some point, but it's not as black and white as a moment where they wrestle through, man, do I want to stay in this marriage or not? Do I want to go the way of divorce or am I going to go on a long, hard journey together? And so standing up here, I, I feel the weight of this morning. Um, it was yesterday evening, I was talking to my sister-in-law. She's like, oh, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, I'm putting final touches on my, my message. And I was like, yeah, I'm just, I'm not super excited about tomorrow. Because talking about marriage and talking about divorce, it's heavy. There's a, there's a weight to it. And marriage can, it can be beautiful, but it can also be incredibly painful. And so this morning, we're actually going to look and see how Jesus himself speaks on marriage and divorce. And as a pastor who wants to simply teach the word of God to the people of God, we really go where the text leads us. And so I don't feel the freedom to just skip over something that's a little uncomfortable and a little challenging. But I also want to acknowledge that I, I know that this topic can be very painful for some that there's trauma connected to this topic. And I know that some of you in this room have experienced divorce personally, and some of you are children of divorce. And so what I want to do this morning, and what my goal is, and what's really important this morning, is that when we come to this topic, but we approach it with 
grace, compassion, and love. And I want everyone in this room and whoever listens to this later on, know that whatever your story is or your background, know that we as a church love you, that I love you. And that love that we have for you is only a mere fraction of the love that God has for you. And so as we get ready to explore this topic of marriage and divorce from a place of safety in God's love and compassion, before we dive into the text, I want to take a moment to pray together. Jesus, we do. We come to you this morning and we allow our hearts to be open to you. Lord, if there is, if there's pain, if there's trauma, if there's wrestling in our hearts, Lord, I pray that you would meet us in this moment. That this morning would not be a, a judgment or a challenge in that way, Lord, but more of an encouragement. And Lord, that in a way that we would see your love for us as we dive into this controversial and complicated topic. And so we just pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. And so we are going to be walking through the text this morning. We're going to be going from Mark 1 or Mark 10 through verses 1 through 12, but I wanted to kind of just walk through it together with the nature of this one. And so verse 1, Jesus then left the place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan again to crowds of people and again, crowds of people came to him, and as he was his custom, he taught them. I love that. As was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by saying, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And so Jesus is doing what Jesus always does. He has a crowd around him. They're learning from him. And then the Pharisees come up. Like I feel like the, the Gospels is almost like Groundhog Day. It's like Jesus is teaching Pharisees are mad. They start challenging him. Jesus does a miracle. Like, it's just kind of this thing that keeps happening. And so the Pharisees, they come up, and their hearts are to test Jesus. But what the question for us this morning is, what is the test? Why is divorce a subject of great debate? Because when we think of the ancient Middle East, divorce doesn't seem like it'd be something that was common. It was a highly religious culture. You know, we think of it, and we all honestly look back a lot of times with these rose-colored glasses sometimes towards those cultures because we're like, oh, they were better, but they weren't, weren't really. Actually, in the Middle East, divorce was as common as it is today with 50% of all marriages ending in divorce, which is pretty crazy to me. Um, and this was a religious culture, but there was great debate on what constituted being able to get divorced. So there was another scripture that they would always reference, which was Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. should be up on the screen. It says, If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house. So the debate would literally surround this word of indecent or uncleanness. Or earlier where it talks about she, her being displeasing. You know, some of your Bible translations will call it uncleanness. One rabbi, Rabbi Shammai, said that the word meant sexual immorality and therefore that was the only reason that you could get divorced. Unless there was 
an actual act where the, the marital bond was broken due to adultery. So if that doesn't happen, they're, they're locked in according to Rabbi Shammai. And the word that he would use there, it was a Greek word that was porneia, which is where we get our word for pornography. So it's this breaking apart of the two, or the, the two becoming one, it's ripping them apart. But the more widely accepted view in this day and age came from Rabbi Hillel, who said that indecent or uncleanness could actually be anything that was displeasing. There are actually records of men that would divorce their wives, legally divorce their wives for burning their breakfasts. They could be like, I just don't like the way you look anymore. I'm out. I found a better spouse. I'm out. And we look at our culture today, and I think we live in this culture that it is kind of like that, uh, especially with app dating and the, the hookup culture that we currently see. Um, all of this was, a, was to try to create clarity around this idea of divorce. What is okay? And we can understand why one guy is seen as these were the two major views, but there was a major following and acceptance to Rabbi Hillel who said, you can get divorced for any reason versus uh, Rabbi Shammai. And the whole point of all this was to create disunity in the people that were wanting to listen to Jesus. That's why the Pharisees are coming up to him and challenging him on this. Like, hey, what do you say? What do you think about this? Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? These men had heard Jesus teach. They heard the Sermon on the Mount. It wasn't like Jesus' teachings weren't popular or weren't known. But Jesus, knowing the hearts of these men he was dealing with, which honestly is an incredibly important skill, they were not actually asking him because they were curious about his, his thoughts on it. But instead, their intent was simply to trap him in his own words to deduce him to becoming the anti-Bible guy, the anti-Torah guy. And honestly, when people live in this way where they're trying to entrap someone in their words, it's never good. It never produces anything positive at all. Recently, I was on a run one day when I was up in McCall, and people call when people call the church, it rings forward to my cell phone. And so I'm out on this run, and I answered my phone, and I'm running, and I'm, you know, breathing hard, and explaining, like, how I'm on a run right now, how can I help you, you know. And it's this older man. And so I stop running, and I'm just walking, looking at the trees, and kind of, and he starts with this question. He says, he's like, hey, do you have a minute to talk? And I was like, well, you know, I'm out on a run, but yeah, I'd love to talk. He's like, you know, I've just got my Bible open right here, and I've got some questions around the Bible, and I wanted to see if you could help me. And I was like, yeah, I'd love to talk. And so as the conversation goes, I realized that this guy doesn't really want to have a conversation with me. Because as he begins to talk, he's quoted four scriptures to me without giving me an opportunity to engage with him in any level. And just so you know, if you quote four scriptures to me in the very beginning of our conversation, I'm going to be a little concerned. <laughs> Because I realized in that moment, this isn't how you have a question or a dialogue. This is actually how you start an argument, because you're putting your points up to validate your claims before you jumped into. 
Long story short, the conversation surrounded the doctrine of the Trinity. I found out this man was a Jehovah's Witness, and he was very fired up and very frustrated. And the man wasn't willing to listen to anything I had to say. Every time I gave him an answer to a question that he had, he said, well, that's not, that's not accurate. And I'm like, well, I'm looking at the scriptures on my phone right now, and that's what it says. And as we we're ending the conversation, his tone got more aggressive and he got more frustrated, and it ended up with him comparing me to Satan, which I've been called a lot of things in my life, but that is a new one. So, um, so I can now have good fellowship with the Apostle Peter. So, um, so I graciously hung up my phone and continued on my run. I was not in the greatest of spirits. Um, so run, being running was a great place to be. So, But they are. There's people out there that they don't want to hear anything you or I have to say. They simply want to argue. They have a point to prove. And usually it's about intellectual superiority. They have something they're trying to get across that they feel like is more valuable than you as an individual. Because as I'm talking to this man, the thing that I said to him, and this is where he got really aggressive, I said... I believe, you know, that Jesus has called me to love my fellow man. If I look at the teachings of Jesus, because I do know that Jesus is important even in your faith. I know we believe very different things about him, but he's still a valid and, and very important figure in your faith. He calls us to love our fellow man and to walk in respect and kindness and grace with our fellow man. Something I, I feel like you're lacking in this moment. And that's when he said, I feel like you are Satan. And I said, okay, I'm going to go. You have a wonderful day. And I hope you find the truth. And so verse three, back to our text. Jesus is, I love how Jesus responds to them. He simply, he reads the room. Instead, he asks a question. He goes, what did Moses command you? He replied. And they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And so Jesus knew where they were driving the conversation, but he allowed them to lead him there. He didn't say, hey, I know where you're going. I'm just going to jump in. He said, I'm going to let you guys do it. And so verse 5, he said, it was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law. Jesus replied, but at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, so that no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate it. Separate. You know, this. Jesus is responding this way because the Pharisees were trying to twist the intent of the text. Because what you'll find in most, you know, most churches that are not part of the Christian tradition, whether that's the Mormon church or the Jehovah's Witness or anyone that is trying to bring something that is not actually true to you know, faithful Orthodox Christian doctrine, many times they will use the text in a way and it doesn't actually speak to what they're trying to say in this text. Because what they would use it in this, they would say, oh, well, this is saying that it's okay for us to get divorced. That's what, why Moses gave us this. But Jesus is very clear. He's like, no, it's not because this is what Moses wanted or more importantly, what God wanted. This is because of who you are. So in ancient Israel, and this is an important piece, this gives color to the whole point of this story, because if we read this text today in the West in 2023, 
we can look at it and go, man, that is really intense and really harsh. And it, it is. Jesus doesn't pull punches. But in ancient Israel, this brings us to why Moses wrote what he wrote. It was a culture where women didn't carry any rights, really. It was a patriarchal society, meaning that men were the ones who ran everything. They were the ones who had the authority. So a husband could divorce his wife for any reason, but the woman, it was incredibly hard. Not impossible, but it was very difficult for a woman to divorce her husband. And so because it was common practice in that day and age that men would formally divorce their wives, sometimes, you know, for no real reason at all, other than, you know, the wind changing, and they would face no legal action, and they would leave because they found someone better, because someone they burned their food, or they fell out of love, or whatever the reason was. In this patriarchal society, the women would actually be thrown out of the home. So they would be married, and they'd have a home, and then it was like, I'm leaving you. Get out. And so this woman all of a sudden becomes homeless. She has no income. She's, she's literally just tossed out. And so Moses made a provision for women in the Torah because of Israel's sin. And he's saying, Be, give these women a certificate of divorce because the point of the certificate was to make it so the woman could legally be able to remarry so that they could find a new place to live. So that at, and what Moses is essentially saying is like, at least give them a certificate so she can be remarried and find a new home. Otherwise, she may end up living a life and leading a life work, being forced into doing the work of prostitution to try and survive. And ultimately, it's going to probably end up that she's going to fall into intense poverty and die in disgrace. That's super intense. And so we look at this and we can go, man, there's a lot going on here. And there is. There's a ton going on in this passage. Because this is how Jesus understood the law. And this is what's important. The law is not necessarily the truest revelation of God's heart. It is the ideal but instead, it's accommodating guide rails to help Israel get back on track because of their sin. This is why we read the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is talking about the law and he's bringing it to a much deeper and more meaningful place. He's saying, yes, the law says don't kill, but actually God's heart is that you wouldn't be angry with one another and nurse grudges with one another. Jesus is making something incredibly clear in this moment. Moses isn't condoning or promoting divorce, but he's creating a, a way that the society can function. Because in the reality, we live in a world that is broken. We as a people are broken. And so Jesus is pointing to the religious leaders and he's saying, it's because of your hard hearts that this is here. Or another way, because of the sin that is in your hearts. That's why we have this. And this is why this topic is hard. Because we read a passage like this, 
and we feel like Jesus is stating that all divorce is wrong and bad and should never happen. And I actually don't think that's the case. That's not really what's going on here. Jesus is putting forth that this is God's ideal, that this is God's heart, that this is God's design. When I walk with someone that experiences the death of a loved one, one of the main things I always try to say to them is I go, man, you were not designed for this. Because you weren't. God did not design us to experience death. That's why it destroys us on an emotional level. We were designed for everlasting community and communion with God and others. And so Jesus is putting forth this ideal in his God's heart, and I can confidently say that I don't believe God will ever find joy in divorce, but I also think it's important for you to hear that because we weren't designed and created for that kind of trauma. Because we need to realize that in all divorce, no matter what, there is a loss. There is suffering and there is pain. And I always think through the heaviness when I hear someone is going through a divorce. Because when I think of that and when I hear that, I always think back to the marriage ceremony. Where the vows were spoken, the love that is tangibly felt in the room. But at this point, that love has gone away and is now over for a variety of reasons. The power and the weight of that moment where you looked into someone's eyes and you said, I choose you above all else. And to have that change. The pain that is present in that, I cannot imagine. And I know some of you have walked through that. And I'm sorry for that. And my point in walking into that is to show us and to acknowledge that there is loss, that there is pain, that there is grieving that happens in that. And so no, in God's ideal, in his design, it wasn't for divorce. That wasn't the, the ideal. But God also understands that there are dangerous and abusive scenarios where innocent parties must be released from the marriage covenant. But this isn't the way God designed it to be. He also didn't design spouses to be abusive and manipulative and you know, hurtful. But it is the reality that we see in our world today. N.T. Wright has this great analogy comparing Deuteronomy 24. He says, Moses didn't say... As it were, you drive a car, when you drive a car, this is how you have an accident. Rather, when you drive a car, take care that you take care not to have an accident, but tragically, an ac if an accident happens, this is how you will deal with it. Moses wasn't using it to create liberty, but responsibility. Jesus' desire for all of mankind is that we would live not on what we can get away with, but what his actual heart is as his followers. Again, similar to the Sermon on the Mount, it's not that I just, it's not enough that I just don't have to not kill someone, 
but are you angry and bitter with an individual? It is not about committing the physical act of adultery, but are you living a lifestyle of lusting after others? Don't just love your neighbor because they're conveniently right there and they have an effect on your life immediately, but love those that are actually enemies, those that hurt you, those that challenge you, those that are out to get you. This is the heart of God, and this is how we become salt and light in our world, as he states on the Sermon on the Mount. So the disciples are once again privately with Jesus, and they ask him to explain this once again a little bit clearer. And this is verse 10 through 12. He says, when they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this, and he answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. And so this can be taken by people when we just read these statements as a, as a Jesus is making a very intense statement about remarriage. Is it okay to get remarried? Because it's like, okay, there's divorce, but what about remarriage? Is that okay? Is it always not okay? What's going on here? And so actually I don't think this is meant to be a dogmatic statement that we point to as like, hey, this is the defining statement of marriage and remarriage. And historically, there's three views that we can find in the church that are, the, that are popular views historically taken from the Gospels and the New Testament that surround this idea of remarriage. The first one is, and we'll go from the most conservative to you know, the most progressive, but number one, the Bible gives permission to divorce based on adultery or abandonment, but remarriage is forbidden. So the Bible says, hey, you can get divorced, just because of adultery or abandonment, but remarriage, that's off the table. You will live your life as a single person for the rest of your days. That's actually the view of the Catholic Church today. That's, that's their current view. The second one is the Bible gives permission for divorce only where there has been adultery or abandonment and remarriage is permissible. So you can get divorced and get remarried if it's adultery or abandonment. The third one is the one that I would line, align myself with. The Bible gives permission for divorce for a number of very serious reasons, and in each case, remarriage is permissible. Followers of Jesus, though, need to acknowledge that marriage is a covenant, not a contract, and thus we work tirelessly to repent and reconcile so that covenant is able to carry on. And so it's with hard work that we do to try to restore the relationship before we move into a divorce, but remarriage is an option. And number four is Jesus has died for, there's a fourth one that I didn't put in my notes, but figured it's probably still good to say. This is the most progressive is that all divorce is permissible, all remarriage is permissible. So there's just kind of the, the gates are open because they would say Jesus has covered it all. Uh, and there's kind of this freedom in it. And so we as a church don't hold an official stance on this. But like I said, personally, I would land myself in camp three. Because all throughout the Sermon on the Mount and the Gospels and the letters in the New Testament, it's very clear. We are, as followers of Jesus, are to be people that are forgiven and being forgiven. Or, or sorry, ex we are forgiven and extending that forgiveness. Always working towards reconciliation and restoration. What Jesus is doing in this text, what he is doing in the Sermon on the Mount, is he's taking it out of Rabbi Hillel and Rabbi Shammai's hands, 
and he's calling for a seriousness to approach this subject. It's not just about intellectual or spiritual exercise. There are very real consequences that come from divorce. Similar to how Moses saw the way that women were being kind of tossed to the side in, in ancient Israel, today when a couple gets divorced, it does affect them emotionally, but it also can affect them financially. I was reading a study recently that stated 75% of women that are applying for welfare benefits are due to a disruption in their marriage or a disruption in a relationship with you know, a man that they live with. Jesus is saying to his disciples, he's essentially saying, he's like, take this very seriously. He is driving it home that divorce is a serious thing and not to be taken lightly. It isn't about my feelings or my happiness or if I've fallen out of love, you know, or the person looks different than they did when we got married. But it is if the marriage union has been torn apart from a very serious and legitimate reason. And so there are these serious reasons that we, we see legitimate reasons for divorce. One being adultery, where there, that marriage covenant is torn apart, where the two are no longer one. One has torn it apart. We see that Paul in his first letter to, to the Corinthians in chapter 5, verse 7, he actually adds another one where he talks about abandonment being another legitimate reason for divorce, where some men... They wouldn't officially divorce their wives. They would just leave. And this woman would be stuck because she was never given a certificate. And another one that I'm sure is swarming around in your minds in this room is, well, what about abuse? Is divorce okay if there's been abuse? And honestly, there's some that would argue absolutely not. And that really breaks my heart because... If someone is sitting with me and they're telling me that they're being abused, whether that's physically or emotionally, I'm not going to say to that person, well, you just need to stick it out and send them right back into an abusive situation and say, this is God's heart for you and this is God's design for you and you just need to suffer well. That would be irresponsible of me as a pastor because the, one of the main responsibilities of, for me as a pastor is to lead and protect. And sending someone into an abusive environment is not protection. I'm not becoming, I'm becoming in that moment if I send them into that, an agent for abuse to happen. And I am encouraging that to happen. In which if I look back at God's heart with how he dealt with leaders in the Old Testament... They would get, he would be furious when the leaders would do things like this. And this is why I believe in this moment Jesus is not stating this as a black and white list of this is okay and this is not, but instead he's bringing his disciples back to the heart, to the ideal, to the seriousness with which we take marriage because it was such a casual thing in their day. And honestly, I don't think it, in, even in our day, it's as casual as it was in their day. Because your vows are more than a contract. They're more than just beautiful words. It's a covenant. That's why we call them marital vows and not marital, marital promises. It is a place where God is going to do long and lasting work in both you and in your spouse's life. 
there's this Bible commentator, Emil Bruner, he says that marriage is a form of discipleship. Occasionally it, is, it can be seen as a cross, and sometimes it's a deep suffering because it's so daily and so personal. Disciples can show that they are loyal to both Jesus and to one another in this. And what he's saying in this passage is he's not saying, hey, marriage is this horrible and dreadful thing, but it's actually the thing that God is going to do a lot of work in your life as a follower of Jesus. And when I reflect on my own marriage story, mine hasn't been a bummer. I'm not looking back going, man, my marriage has been this horrible cross to bear. But it's actually the thing that God will use to do a lot of work in your life as a follower of Jesus. It's been the place that God has done the most important and significant work in my life as a follower of Jesus. And so maybe you see yourself in this morning or someone you love in this morning. What if you're already divorced? Can you get remarried or not? What if your marriage wasn't because of adultery, abuse, or abandonment, or something else that was really serious? What if I'm the responsible party in my divorce, and I'm the one that actually called for it? First and foremost, all throughout Scripture, God is never after us just to get it right. But God is after a people who are repentant and searching for reconciliation. Because if we could be perfect, Jesus didn't have to come. And Jesus always brings hope to the offended and to the offender. So in the case of marriage and remarriage, I want to close with a quote from Bruner. When being asked about remarriage specifically for those who carry the responsibility of it, he says this, he says, Now the question can be answered by another question. Is there forgiveness of sins in the gospel? You know, let's ask another question. Is there the possibility of a new beginning for the repentant person in the New Testament? The answer to both of these questions, I think, can only be this. Where there is sincere repentance and confession of sin, faith in Jesus Christ that accepts him as our only hope to God, as genuine commitment to live a holy life, there is full forgiveness of sins. There is power to live a new life, and the future is right as the promises of God. And so if you wrestle with this, and I've, I've talked to people in our church that do wrestle with this very specific topic in their own story. Can you get remarried? I would say absolutely. I think Jesus gives forgiveness for sin, whether that's sin created by you or that sin that was committed against you. But I think the biggest thing that Jesus is looking for is their repentance. Is there a search for reconciliation? Are we following in the ways of Jesus? And so I'm going to pray and I'm going to allow you guys to come to the table this morning. And, and I just want to be very transparent. 
with you guys. This is a very difficult passage for me to teach. Um, knowing that it, it directly affects people that I love very deeply and that I also can't imagine the, the roads you've had to walk. But I also say it with compassion and with grace and with love, knowing that God has been faithful with you and that he will be faithful with you in the future. And so with that, let's pray. Father, we just thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to come and to worship you. I pray that you would meet with each person here. Lord, if there's, if this morning rises some things up in, in the souls of your people, Lord, I pray that we would not allow those things to just be squashed down, but Lord, that we would have conversations around it. Lord, that our hearts would be ready. Lord, and for those of us that are that are married, Lord, if there we're in a season where marriage does, it feels like a cross. Lord, may we lean into you in that time and may you shape us more and more into your image and make us more and more like you in that process. May we not go the way of the world and simply walk away from what you've given to us. And Lord, for those that are not married and those that are single in this current stage of life, Lord, I pray that you would meet with them. Lord, that this would not just be a teaching that doesn't apply to them, but Lord, that they would see themselves as wanting to be a people that are following you in, in every aspect of their lives, in the, in the big decisions and in the small ones. And so, Jesus, may you meet with us. Thank you for who you are. We love you. We're grateful for you. We just pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching from Boise Community Church. To find more resources and information about Boise Community Church or to give to the mission of Boise Community Church, please visit us online at boisecommunitychurch.org. If you were encouraged by today's podcast, Please rate and review it so more people can discover the hope and joy of Jesus' love.